You can join the fight to defend employee-funded and association PACs by texting NABPAC to 52886. Message and data rates may apply. Welcome back to the Facts About PACs podcast. This show is brought to you by NABPAC, the National Association of Business Political Action Committees. And I'm your host, Michaela Isler, NABPAC's Executive Director. Today's show is a particularly important one for all of us, Adam. The employee-funded and business trade association PAC community does important work, and we promote civic engagement, we empower our employees and members, and moderate political streams. That is no secret, Michaela, to those who contribute and work so hard for success in business and policy. But for everybody else, what hard evidence exists to demonstrate the positive impacts of PACs? Well, today we're going to dig in on that critical question with a political scientist whose work in this area is eye-opening. Michael J. Barber received his PhD in politics from Princeton University in 2014 and has published research in scholarly journals such as Science Advances, American Political Science Review, American Journal of Political Science, and many others. Today, Mike Barber is a faculty scholar at the Center for the Study of Elections and Democracy at Brigham Young University. The political science behind the politically moderating effects of employee-funded and business trade association PACs coming up. The Facts About PACs podcast is produced especially for the members of the National Association of Business Political Action Committees. In every episode, we recap this week's NAPAC activities, share actionable intelligence and best practices, all while connecting the PAC community. Quick NAPAC activity update for our member listeners here. We have an important briefing on the calendar coming up in the first week of April. This event is for NABPAC members only. Registration is open. Thanks, Adam. You know, I think most professionals in our industry have a keen sense of why and how their advocacy helps keep politics more moderate and focused on issues. Transparent political giving that supports candidates of both parties isn't a dream, it's a reality. One that Professor Michael J. Barber of Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, has made a career out of studying. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Politics and practice is the world that our listeners live in every day. And understanding that world, its impacts and motivations is really in your realm. Let me start with this question. Do traditional PACs have a moderating impact on our politics? And if so, how? Well, I think that the short answer to your question is yes. It does appear to be the case that contributions by political action committees tend to have a moderating influence on legislatures, both at the federal level, as well as looking across various state legislatures as well. And the reason that it appears to be that they have this moderating impact is that interest groups are really interested in passing legislation. They're always looking for ways to tweak little things about legislation here or there that might help them or that might help their industry operate better or more efficiently. And to do that, you need a legislature that is willing to compromise and you need a legislature that's willing to pass things. And that in turn tends to lead to more moderation on the part of legislators. Professor Barber, what does the data tell us about how PACs give to both sides of the aisle? When we look at the patterns of interest groups, 
when we talk about moderation, what we really mean is there are some really distinct patterns that emerge in how interest groups allocate their money. And you've hit exactly on one of those patterns, which is that interest groups, way more than individual contributors, tend to give to both parties. They give money to Republicans and Democrats. They also tend to favor giving to incumbents over non-incumbents, which makes sense. If you're trying to impact legislation, giving to a challenger is a risky bet. As well, they tend to focus their contributions on people who hold kind of pivotal places in the legislative process. So people who occupy, say, committee chairs or, or subcommittee chair positions. Those are places where legislation tends to get tied up. And so if you can have access or the ear of a legislator in that position, then that's going to be really helpful for you as you look to move your particular issue forward. Michael, I wonder if you could share with our podcast audience your research findings on the dramatically different ideological motivations between individual donors and political action committees in their giving. Absolutely. These are the two largest sources of money, both at the federal and the state level. And you really see that they give for very different reasons, and that translates into very different places where they put their money. Interest groups tend to give to incumbents. They tend to give in safe seats. They tend to favor the majority party, and they like to contribute to committee chairs. It's almost the exact opposite when it comes to individual contributors. They're much more likely to support ideological challengers who are taking on incumbents, they tend to focus their money on competitive districts where they are trying to unseat a member of one party and replace them with another party. They really don't have any interest in whether you're a committee chair or you hold some sort of position of power. It's much more about ideological agreement. Does this legislator say the, the ideological things that I want them to say? Do they agree with me on all of the issues? That sort of thing. It's much more issue-based as opposed to strategic, as we tend to see with interest groups. Michael, your research is possible because traditional PACs, employee-funded PACs and business trade association PACs are so well-regulated and transparent. The FEC holds all the data and the compliance. Oh, I wouldn't be able to do it without the availability of data that tells us who is contributing and where they're contributing their money. And so at the federal level, you have these requirements that people register with the FEC as to when they contribute and how much they contribute. At the state level, you have various disclosure laws. It varies by states. But yeah, you can't study this if there's no record of who's giving and, and where they're giving. What does your research tell us about how candidates reflect that ideology of their contributors? Yeah, I think there's two important patterns to, to pull out here. And the, the first is an overtime trend. Individual contributors have grown in their influence. And what you can see is that the typical candidate is raising much more of their money. You, you might kind of call it like their donation portfolio is much more heavily skewed towards individual contributors versus interest groups than it was say 20 or 30 years ago. I was actually just looking at some data that in the 2018 cycle, the typical candidate for Congress raised somewhere north of 75% of their money from individual contributors, which means that the remaining 25% was either 
party contributions or interest groups. And so individuals are certainly the lion's share of donations now, whereas 20 or 30 years ago, that was much closer to parity in terms of individual versus interest group contributions. That has really important implications because if we look at the types of legislators who raise most of their money from individuals, it tends to be the types of legislators who are also very partisan, who vote almost always along party lines. They're very often the types of people who are going to take ideological stances. They're not going to be willing to compromise. And so these are the types of legislators that individuals want. They look for those types of candidates to support. And what you end up getting is a legislature that's full of ideological firebrands instead of people who are really interested in kind of putting their heads down and, and getting some work done and, and compromising and pushing out some legislation. You know, I think our audience would be very interested to know your findings on the impact of legal limits on contributions. It's been an issue we've been fighting for a long time and how they either mute or amplify the connection you spoke about between donors and recipients. Absolutely. You know, this is a hard question to study at the federal level because the limits haven't changed or, you know, there's been very little change. But at the state level, there's a large amount of variation both across states and within states over time. States are constantly changing and adjusting the, the amount of money that individuals can contribute or that interest groups can contribute. Some states have no limits. I live in the state of Utah. Utah has no contribution limits for any donor, individual or interest group. And some of the other states have very strict limits. Wisconsin has had limits around like $500, very limited in terms of who can contribute and how much. I looked at the change over time in these limits and how that correlated with the type of legislature that you had in these states. And what I found was that as states raised the limits on interest groups, the legislature tended to become more moderate as a result. On the other hand, as states raised the limit on individual contributions, the legislature tended to become more polarized and more partisan as a result. So you can see that as you change the ability of these different groups to contribute, that has kind of second and third order effects in that it affects the types of candidates that get elected, it impacts the types of legislation that gets passed, and overall, it just affects the way the legislature functions in general. It would be fascinating to be able to look at that as a test case for reforms at the federal level. I think it certainly speaks to before we make policy changes, we should really think about what are the impacts that those policy changes are going to have. And I think there's often a knee jerk reaction to just say, well, we should just lower the limits on everyone or, oh, interest groups are terrible and we should lower their limits. But individuals are you know, they're the savior of democracy and these individual small donors are going to, they're just going to be the best thing ever for our legislature uh, or for our government. And, you know, I think my research suggests that that's probably not the case. I think if you unleash a bunch of individual contributors into the donor pool, you're going to get a lot of partisanship and a lot of support for partisanship. And there might be people who think that's a good thing. And there might be people who think that that's a bad thing. Fascinating. Those are some important facts about PACs. And we've got to continue to tell that story because the narrative out there is one of misunderstanding, Michael. Yeah, I think that it's unfortunate that the narrative regarding interest group contributions seems to be either one of corruption 
and kind of a quid pro quo buying legislation, buying votes from members of Congress, that sort of thing. Or on the other hand, there seems to be an, a narrative that corporations are just like individuals. They're going to start flooding the market with ideological contributions. And both of those things are wrong. There's just an endless supply of political science research refuting this idea that interest groups are purchasing votes. There's study after study after study that says there's just no evidence of this. And instead, interest groups contribute as a way to participate in the legislative process. You're buying ears more than you're buying votes, you might say. The ability to have a conversation with a legislator about how a bill might impact your industry. And that's a good thing because as legislation is written, it would be insane to not have the stakeholders and the people who are most impacted by the legislation participate. Now, certainly you're not going to give it over to them entirely, but they should certainly have a voice in the process. Otherwise, it's like driving a car while blindfolded. It just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> As to ideological, you know, the fear that corporations are going to unleash a kind of ideological money, we just don't see that. There was a lot of fear that after Citizens United, that suddenly corporations were going to start just dumping hundreds of millions of dollars into the pool and that it was going to be this just partisan warfare. And you didn't see that. Corporations, they're extremely risk averse. And the worst thing that can happen to Target or, you know, any of these kind of mainstream brands, I, I think I picked Target because I think Target had one of these uh, incidents is the worst thing that can happen is that your brand becomes politicized because you've suddenly alienated 50% of your customer base. And so we don't see evidence that corporations have any interest in getting involved in the kind of partisan warfare of the legislative process. Instead, they just want to quietly participate in writing legislation that will benefit their industry and, and help their industry operate more efficiently and, and, you know, more successfully. That I think really is what the political science research suggests. Well, we appreciate having that to back us up because we've been saying this for a long time and this has all been just incredibly helpful from our perspective. And you sort of hit on this a little bit when you talked about Citizens United, but let's just talk a little bit about dark money for a minute. How hard is it for you and your colleagues to really study the effects of political giving on the system when so much of the activity outside of our traditional PACs is so opaque? Yeah, it's really a challenge. In some ways, we're only studying half the picture, and that's simply because we just don't have any window into what's going on in these places where you don't have to disclose either the donors or where the money is being channeled to. From my perspective, transparency makes things just so much better. As a researcher, I'm self-interested in that, you know, I can't really do my research if I don't have good data. And so having data on who's contributing and, and where they're contributing is really essential for being able to identify these patterns and understand what's going on on the ground. 
I have long lobbied in a number, probably 15 plus states, working in a state like Virginia, much like Utah, where no limits you can give from a corporation individual, but it's all reported. It's all transparent is a model, I think, for, for the federal level. We, we know where all the money's coming and going. It doesn't really matter where it's coming from. I tend to agree. I think that when I teach my classes about money and politics, I tell students money is much like water. It will find a way, it will fill the cracks, you can divert it, but it will move around. And so rather than trying to funnel it and channel it in particular directions, which I just think is you're constantly chasing a moving target, it would simply be better to say, let anyone give, but make sure that everything is reported and that it's reported very accurately and very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, and that I think is a much better approach than trying to limit contributions because when you limit them, people just find other ways and the money just moves in a new direction. And it's often harder to track and find. Professor Michael Barber, a faculty scholar at the Center for the Study of Elections and Democracy at Brigham Young University. Thank you for sharing your research findings with all of us today. I do hope that you'll come back and join the conversation with us again soon. Thank you for having me. It's been great. And thanks to everyone listening and sharing the number one PAC podcast in America. Facts About PACs stands alone in promoting the most transparent and regulated form of political giving. NABPAC and this show binds our community together, and we are proud to have you with us. Subscribe and share, and we'll be back soon with a new episode. Until then, stay safe, stay engaged, and keep moving forward.